This podcast is powered by the leading at the top of your game development experience. If you would like to work with Karen and the shockingly different leadership team to up-level the leadership execution acumen within your organization, visit developingyourgame.com to find out more. The crisis leadership I look at, I find very important because when it goes well, lives are saved, communities are saved, and it really is, it's, it's the most high impact situation that any leader can find themselves in. Welcome to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast, where we equipped you to more effectively lead your seat at any employer, business, or industry in which you choose to play. Each week, we help you sharpen your leadership acumen by cracking open the playbooks of dynamic leaders who are doing big things in their professional endeavors. And now your host, leadership tactics and organizational development expert, Karen Farrell-Rhodes. Hey there, superstars. This is Karen Rhodes, and thanks for joining another episode designed to help you better lead at the top of your game. Have you ever led through a major crisis? I mean, a truly significant one. I mean, think about the fraud that occurred at Enron or something like the E. coli scare that Chipotle had a few years back. Or if you think way back, you might remember the financial collapse of the Lehman Brothers and also the oil spill from the Deepwater Horizon. But if you ever had to guide your team through such a challenging time, would you know what to do? To give us some tips on what leaders should do in times of crisis, we have on today's show, Eric McNulty, Associate Director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard. His work centers on leading in high stakes, high pressure situations. And I want you to be sure to listen for when Eric shares with us the first three things that we should do whenever a crisis happens. And stay tuned to after the episode, just for two minutes, to listen to my closing segment called Karen's Take, where I share a tip on how to use insights from today's episode to further sharpen your leadership acumen. And now, enjoy the show. Hey there, superstars. This is Karen, and welcome to another episode of the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast. I am so pleased to have an expert on this today's show who will talk to us about crisis management and a lot of the things um, as it relates to leadership. And believe you me, if you're a leader, you're going to come across crises at some point point in time. And to be honest with you, you might be like a deer in headlights trying to figure out how to handle them. And so to help navigate us and give us some points and tips on what to do in those situations, we're so pleased to have on today's show, Mr. Eric McNulty, who's the Associate Director of the National Prepared Leadership Initiative at Harvard. His work centers on leading high stakes, high pressure situations, and he is the principal author of case studies on crises such as the Boston Marathon bombing response, Superstorm Sandy, I know we all remember that, and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. And I was fascinated when that was happening and even watched the movie afterwards to see if there are any other... (laughs) Any other information? Because all of those crises um, were top of mind, especially in the United States. He is also the co-author of the book, You're It, 
crisis, change, and how to lead when it matters most. So welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thanks, Karen. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, we're so thrilled to have you. And are you ready to crack open your leadership playbook on the area of crisis management? I will do my best because there's plenty of crises out there for people to deal with. That is true. <laughs> if we all take one each, I bet we can create a better world. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, before we dive in on your topic, Eric, um, we always love to learn a little bit about our guests. So as much as you feel comfortable, would you mind giving us a sneak peek into um, your personal life and passions? Sure. Um, I have a, a wide variety of interests. One of the ones that uh, most people don't know about is I'm really crazy about elephants. Um, I, yes, I, I, elephants are so, so close to us in many ways. They don't look it, but they're emotionally complex. They live in really, you know, familial groups. They are long lived like us and, um, they are keystone species in their ecosystem, particularly in, in Africa. The, the African savanna would not exist without elephants. And so all these other species are dependent upon them. And I always think that's a good, good analogy, a different way for us to look at the world, because if, if we don't have a world where elephants will thrive, we don't have one where we're going to thrive very long either. And so they're a big, charismatic megafauna. Pretty much everyone thinks, oh, we can see an elephant. But they're really complex and really interesting animals. So I like them, and a, and a portion of all my speaking fees goes to support Big Life Foundation, which does a very holistic approach to species conservation and habitat preservation and sustainable development with the communities that cohabitate with elephants. So that's one of the things I put a lot of a lot of time and effort into. Wonderful. That is so inspiring. And can you repeat that organization again? Because I want to include that as a link in your show notes. Absolutely. It's a Big Life Foundation. It's biglife.org. And they do some amazing work. They've been doing it for quite a while. And not a well large, well-known organization, but they do some of the most important work on the ground. Oh, that is amazing. Well, I personally appreciate you giving a portion of your speaker fees to it sounds like a most deserving organization. And hopefully our listeners um, will do the same as well. So thank you for sharing that. (laughs) All right. Well, let's um, take a a pivot and begin talking about some of those high stake, high pressure situations that you're uh, an expert on. So can you start uh, by sharing with us a little bit about your area of focus and um, a few, and why you got passionate about really doubling down and understanding uh, crisis management? Well, I think that the, the crisis leadership I look at, I find very important because when it goes well, lives are saved, communities are saved, and it really is, it's, it's the most high impact situation that any leader can find themselves in. It doesn't call so much for a different set of skills as it does for practicing your core skills at the at your absolute highest level. So think of think of uh, we just had the, the French Open uh, for any tennis players out there. They're playing with the same racket, the same balls on the same size court as the weekend hacker, but they're playing at a whole different level. So when you're in a crisis, you've got to be able to communicate well, demonstrate emotional intelligence, make decisions. You've got to be able to do all those things that are important every day, but with the pressure of a crisis, with the glare of the media, perhaps, with high consequences. So you've got to really, really be able to perform at that high level. And I think understanding that was uh, is really important to me, really fascinated me. And also because it's, you know, we always talk about singular leaders, but often crises are resolved by a group of leaders working together. It's rarely one person, right? And so again, the human dynamic there, I find really interesting because 
you know, we as a species, we're a social species. We're meant to be in groups and meant to work well in groups. Yet we all we do our best to confound that when we design our organizations and a lot of the rules and protocols we put in place have us always competing with each other. So that's really what has intrigued me. And again, but the really driving force has been that I get to work with a lot of frontline leaders. And when if I can help them do their job just a little bit better, lives are saved. And what more could you ask for than that? Not a thing. I mean, that is so critically important because you're right. When And I've um, helped uh, leaders through a few of those. I'll I won't mention them just to protect their identity, but they're, you know, enterprise level uh, companies and organizations that had to really straddle that difficult time. What I have found, and I want to understand if you agree, and it's okay if you don't, you can throw tomatoes at me, (laughs) Eric, but I have found that those traits that are areas of opportunity for growth for leaders, um, those behavioral traits really come out during crisis leadership, meaning that it gets even worse and it may hold back their effectiveness. And sometimes mm-hmm. they need a coach or mentor or someone to kind of call them out on it to or help them through it so that it doesn't derail the corrective efforts that you all are trying to implement. Do you see that as well or do you see something different? No, absolutely. Because I, I think in a crisis, things tend to feel a bit out of control. So what do people try and do? They try and assert control. They want they want to bring some semblance of order back to a situation, which is which is important. But often people, you know, leaders will get into a situation where they begin micromanaging or they centralize decision making. They become a bottleneck and even sometimes a single point of failure, and they become much less effective. And so that sort of almost instinctual response to "I've got to do everything" is the exact wrong thing to do. Again, you can always tell the difference between someone who's facing their first crisis or someone who's been through two or three before because they don't panic quite as much and they've seen what works and what doesn't. And as I mentioned earlier, you've got to be able to make decisions. You've got to be able to demonstrate high emotional intelligence to keep your team functioning really well. Uh, you've got to be able to keep a, a good, broad perspective on the, uh, on the situation because you're it. You know, people, you're, you are that person if you're leading it who people are looking to. And so you're creating the conditions in which others can help solve the problem, which others can rise and do their best, which is what you're going to need in a large crisis. That's so true. That is so true. So the type of um, consulting or advisement work that you do, do you help prepare leaders for such situations or do people typically have you on speed dial when it's hit the fan? Well, a lot of it is preparing leaders, uh, I will say. Although we do get the opportunity to be with leaders in the midst of crisis or soon thereafter. So the things you the events you mentioned earlier, Deepwater and Sandy and uh, the Boston Marathon bombings, those were events where I was able to be on the ground with leaders. Those are often former students who've come through an executive education program at Harvard. So they feel comfortable reaching out and saying, hey, can you come be someone I can talk to? This, uh, uh, definitely there is a consultant, but there is someone they can talk to, right? And that's, that helps a lot to have someone who's knows enough about what's going on, but isn't intimately involved in situations you can just talk to and say, what are you seeing? What's going on? Or here's what I'm thinking about doing. They have, that sounding board is really, really important. And so, you know, there, and then being able to share those lessons, and that's part of the preparedness is walking through events with, with people who come to an exec ed program or, or I meet in a one-on-one kind of situation to say, you know, here are the situations you might face. Let's talk through what it's going to feel like, what you may have to 
the decisions you may have to make, um, the really tough calls that you may you may be called to make to uh, have to decide. Those are really critically important. And unless you've been through both the sort of technical operational piece and I think even more important, the emotional piece, uh, because to feel that pressure to, re- to realize when things are, you know, jobs could be at, li- at stake, lives could be at stake, your community could be in danger. That's a lot of pressure. And if you haven't experienced those emotions before, they can overwhelm you. And that's when things really tend to go the wrong way. I so agree with that. I'm wondering if you can, because I'm sure you talk it through case studies and have them practice ahead of time. Is it possible that you can share with us maybe one or two tips that you always make sure that you're including in your discussions with the teams, um, you know, on how they should think about our approach times such as those? Absolutely. And so the, the first thing I always tell people, and this may seem overly simplistic, but it's really critical, is breathe, right? Breathe. We, because when you control your breathing, you control everything else that's going on in your body. So when you take some slow controlled breaths, just back out again, you slow down your heart rate, you calm things down, and you get you can get control. You can get out of what we call the emotional basement, which is that deer in the headlights, freeze, flight, fight, panic response. That exerts some, some control over your body and calms you down. So that's the most important thing. Don't forget to breathe. And then the second thing is actually to, to look at what you can slow down. Because crises, everything seems to move more quickly. And some things do have to move really fast. But often there are things which are moving fast, but will be, have, get a better outcome if you slow them down a bit. So look and see, okay, which things are really of immediate concern and which things should, can I have the time to take to, to talk about a little bit to think about before I do them, and so exerting some control over the pace of what's happening is really important. And then the third thing I think is to distribute leader decision making and authority. I mentioned a few minutes ago that in a crisis, again, leaders tend to pull things in. And they want to do it all themselves. They start to micromanage. They start to centralize control. And what you do then is you create a bottleneck that can slow everything down. If you can distribute decision-making and authority. Again, the people who were doing their job yesterday who you thought were perfectly competent are still perfectly competent today. So let them do their job. If you can, if people are grounded in the values of the organization, that they the organization really believes in, not stuff they just say they do, but they really believe in, and the core operating principles of the business, they'll know how to make the right decisions. They'll know how to get things done. You've got to let them do that. Yes, you want to be informed. Yes, there's certain decisions only you can make if you're in a senior executive role. That's great. Make those. And the other ones, push out. You know, take some things off your plate, which gives you the room to have that broader view, to have a bigger perspective, and be able to make the right strategic decisions, not just be sucked into all the tactical stuff. So breathe, you know, distribute that power and authority, now that that's really going to get, get you where you want to go and slow things down where you need to. Don't be afraid to slow things down. That was the third piece there. Yes. Oh, I love this. I love all this three. And I was taking this and writing this down. I have a question on you for the last one about um, when you're distributing leadership decisions. I agree uh, 110%, but how do does the, the ultimate executive or leader, how do they instruct their teams on which decisions to escalate to them versus not. So this is where exercises and it's a scenario building is so important. So you can decide, okay, if we have to close a facility, I want to make that decision. If we need to evacuate part of it or make some moves to shut down part of our production line and move some things over here. Great. You 
you're more expert than that, you just go do it. Um, it may be, again, if there are lives in the line, I, mean, I've, I have um, been in situations working with organizations where they've had employees kidnapped. And so you're deciding to negotiate or not. And there's a whole science to that. And there are specialists in kidnapped and response and, and ransom situations. But there, the country manager I was working with said, you know, ultimately, I want to hear everybody's opinion on that one, what we're going to do. But I have to make that decision because if it goes wrong and that person doesn't come home, I have to own that. I have to talk to the family. That's on me. I'm not going to put that on you. So by talking through what the consequences may be and say, you know what, I need to own that decision. But a bunch of other ones, let's figure out how you push them out and distribute them. That way they can get they can get done more quickly. Because if, if I'm a very senior executive and I'm deciding what sandwiches to order for the war room, that's bad, right? And that's an extreme example. But you do get people who start, again, they, they tend to micromanage or go into that operational role. And it bogs them down. It slows everyone else down. And it keeps them from doing what they should be doing, which is looking at the big picture, anticipating what's going to happen next, and making sure the organization is ready to get ahead of the crisis. Because once you get behind it, it's really, really hard to catch up. Yes, it, it sure is. You're so spot on with that. And I'm just curious, and it's okay if you, you're you not quite sure on what you would do, but right now, and I'm kind of dating the episode because right now in the news, we're all waiting to hear about the vessel, the, the vessel that is was looking for at the Titanic um, yeah. and it's missing right now. And I'm I'm sure the the lead organization is going through crisis management right now because they don't know if people are you know alive or passed away. There's you know so many agencies and um, entities involved in trying to search for the vessel. Um, it's on the news twenty four seven. And I'm just curious if you were brought in to advise uh, the people in this situation, because I think the CEO is in the vessel as well. So the yes. ultimate uh, leader is not available. I, I'm curious if there's one or two things that you would ad- advise the rest of the staff uh, right now. Is it? I'm sure it's to breathe, number one. <laughs> number two, uh, see what they can slow down, if anything, and then, um, but what what else would you try to guide them since that their so leader's I, I not there? First of all, first of all I, you know, my heart goes out to the family and friends Me and too. who are, who are yes. on that vessel. Um, mm-hmm. This is tragic, and I hope there's a good outcome to this. We won't know for another few hours, but yes. I hope there is. But so this is where I would say that my advice to the people is you have multi, you now have a multi level crisis. Okay, you have the vessel which may be lost, which has people on board, so you've got a and it's all over the international news. So you've got a, a crisis at la- that level. There are questions about whether the, the company did the proper certification and testing of the vessel, which is a second crisis. And then you have your C- CEO on board, as you mentioned. So you've got a, uh, a continuity crisis within the organization. So what I would say there is, first of all, put people first. Make sure you're demonstrating empathy, taking care of people. This is going to be traumatic, obviously, for those who, you know, the people on board, their family and friends. But for the organization itself, with their CEO down there and having lost customers, you know, it's one thing is this is transactional. People paid to be there. But you get invested in the people who are taking part in something like this. And yes, it's high risk. They knew what they were getting into. This is like climbing Mount Everest, right? People die every year trying to do it, but people keep trying to do it. Um, this mm-hmm. is a high risk endeavor. But still, you've, you, you've got to take care of that. So I think, you know, this is a story in, in, in the book. I got advice from the CEO who went through a, a big crisis on 9-11. And said, I put the people issues in one hand and I put the business issues in the other hand. 
He said, what I found out was the more I took care of the people issues, the human stuff, the more the business issues seem to resolve themselves. So you've got to take care of the people first, both in your organization, those people who are on the vessel, those who are, who are connected to those on the vessel. Take care of those people. And, you know, the rest of it, you're going to, you're going to worry about that. Some things you can slow down. Yes, you're going to get sued. They'll deal with that later. That's going to happen no matter what. Most crises, that happens at some point. But have that empathy as for yourselves. And for those around you, take care of each other. Really, resi- really resilient organizations are full of people who take care of each other. So do that and then express empathy for all those who are affected by this. Mm-hmm. No, that sounds good. And I, uh, I agree and I concur my, our thoughts and prayers are with the families and with everyone involved because you're right. I think the whole world is invested in the individuals and in the story right now. And I hope things uh, work out well. But I was just curious because this is a real-time crisis. I mean, we didn't plan this, you and I. We've been trying to get through the podcast forever. But um, it just so happens that this is in the news right now. So it kind of popped up top of mind. Um, I know you've done um, various case studies on, you know, different types of crises. Is there one that's kind of additional one that's very memorable for you that you have thoughts about? You know, one of the ones that that I... I hate to say I enjoyed the crisis, but it was really, really interesting. Was in that superstorm Sandy response. I was I mm. deployed down to to New York, to New York and New Jersey, and I got to deploy with the FEMA Innovation Team. So the Federal Emergency Management Agency at the time had a uh, a, a innovation team. It was two people from inside FEMA, and then a bunch of self deployed volunteers. They were technologists and designers and supply chain people and. About three dozen. Okay, how did you get in there? I got to know, Eric. How did you get connected? Um, so w- one of my former students was one of the two people who went from FEMA. Oh, and her God. boss was, was uh, now a faculty colleague of mine, but with somebody else who I knew through, through my work at Harvard. And so they said, you know, come again, come on down. And also the dis- district commander for the, for the Coast Guard was a former student. I spent time with him as well. So that's nice. where you have those connections. People say, yeah, come in, be with us. And I get to be with them for several days. So nice. seeing what they were doing, being part of that, seeing how frustrating bureaucracy can be sometimes, how you work around it, uh, and really seeing the ingenuity of people. And uh, this team went out and they, what they did as an innovation team was say, let's look for the gaps. Where are the, you know, the things that the agencies on the ground aren't getting to or the people they're overlooking? Let's see if we can help figure out those problems. And that was everything from finding a wheelchair at the local IKEA to get to somebody who needed a wheelchair and you know, making that happen to yeah. building mesh networks in uh, the Red Hook section of Brooklyn and yeah. sort of setting up to allow people to communicate. And so it's just really, really interesting to see how that happened in the end, how people self-deployed. They weren't getting paid. Nobody really knows mm-hmm. who they are. and They weren't getting a lot of credit. It was really because they wanted to help. And, and mm-hmm. so seeing that work, I'm still connected to many of those people who I met on that trip. Um, that's when it really touched me. And I think as, as we look at you know, the many crises we face going forward, the more we can tap into community, tap into that human human spirit of helping each other and seeing all the talent around us. And rather than say, okay, you know, you haven't got the right uniform on, you go away. Like, no, tell me what you have to offer. Let's figure out how to take advantage of that. How do we use that and bring you into the response as opposed to saying, go sit on the sidelines. That's really when, when we're at our best as communities. I, I definitely agree. And um, we have a person we are interviewed that will be on an upcoming episode who has a a nonprofit that specializes in uh, natural dis- responses to natural disasters. And she, she was saying, it's just 
when ingenuity really re- popped in when you said that, it reminded me of my conversation with her. She said, it is just amazing how we as humans um, can, are, you know, really drive ingenuity in during times of crisis and hidden gifts and traits and everything comes out during that, that time. And people are so open and accepted to that. And she's like, you know, it makes you wonder why aren't we in everyday life, you know, um, using all of these gifts and being accepting of everyone's um, ingenuity at that time. Why does it have to be a crisis uh, when our guardrails, you know, fall and we're all in it. It just helps support the crisis in general. But um, it was a fascinating episode. And I I bet that was fascinating to watch. Um, You had a front row seat, if you will. I'm not celebrating, um, you know, uh, the the storm, but um, but you got to see, you know, human behavior during that time. And I bet it was just absolutely fascinating. It really was interesting. I I, I used to live in New York and New Jersey. So it was a being able to go back to neighborhoods I knew and see people working like that, it was, it was really inspiring. Oh, that is amazing. So I'm curious, Eric, because you study this so much, what does it take for you to lead at the top of your game in your this niche area that you study? It, so I have learned that um, I need to create a little bit of space for myself to be able to process and reflect. So that's part of where the slow down piece really works well for me. Is And I also... So I've, le- I've learned that about myself. I need to just kind of process for a couple of seconds and and then figure it out. I'm, I'm actually pretty good at, at seeing patterns emerging sometimes faster than other people can see them, but only if I have that time, a little bit of time to reflect and kind of take that take that bigger view. Um, that I love to be surrounded by people who are smarter than me and more me capable too. than me. Yeah, that's <laughs> if I'm the smartest one in the room, we're in trouble. Uh, but I. Really learned through a number of roles I've, I've had in life, even before I was doing this work, that um, when you've got people who've got expertise, trust in their expertise and listen to them. And, and they will guide you. They will get you there. You may have to provide some direction sometimes or some motivation or some inspiration or just create some top cover for them. But when you've got people who know what they're doing, let them do it and, and tap into that. That's a Let them lead from where they are, okay. even if they don't have the highest title in the organization. That's perfect. Yes, that is a nugget of gold. I learned the hard way through through my time in corporate America. And, you know, um, by the end, you know, I was very proud of being able to build high performing teams because that was a lesson that I learned, you know, um, during my, you know, leadership times there. And it's extremely important. And it's no matter what company or industry you're in, whether you're at a nonprofit or business or entrepreneur, you know, it doesn't matter. Allow those that are around you to give them, like you said, space to show their expertise, allow them to shine and just be there as a guiding mentor um, if needed. So um, I love that. Definitely. Now, Eric, one of the things that we love to ask our guests uh, on the podcast is if there were any of the the seven leadership tactics that I write about in my book that really resonated with them. And you were so kind to share that um, you really love leading with courageous agility. And for our audience members, if you remember, leading with courageous agility is all about having the courage and the fortitude to do what's right and still move forward, even if the future is unclear or uncertain. And based on area, your area of expertise, it, it's not quite a surprise that you would select that one, but I would love to hear from you your, in your words why leading with courageous agility really resonated with you. Absolutely. I, I, lo- I love this one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because again, a crisis calls for courage. We talk a lot about that. 
and you don't really know what it means until you have to stand up and, you know, again, make a decision that could cost or save someone's life. Uh, or you may have to tell truth to power to someone more, more powerful than you are, um, which could put your job at risk. And you're really going to be willing to, to stand up for what you believe in and for what you think is right and for doing the right thing in that moment. So that courage piece is really important. And then in a crisis, because things are moving quickly, uh, you usually don't understand all the information yet, right? The picture really isn't clear. That agility is, is very important. You've got to be able to adapt and adjust. We've talked in my book with my colleagues about being able to pivot and knowing which foot to plant and which foot to move. You think about a basketball pivot, right? You're not moving both legs. And so having that agility and being able to, to think quickly, act quickly, and again, it's part of why I, I emphasize distributing decision-making and, and authority in a crisis because that makes the organization more agile. Absolutely. We need to make the decision. It's all going to, it's all going to bog down. But if we are, if everyone's sensing what's going on and they're, they're rooted in values, they're rooted in core operating principles. So they, they know the terrain and they know where the guardrails are, then they can make independent decisions. They can take action more quickly because they're closer to the ground, closer to the action that makes us more agile. So I think that courageous agility is that those are the, We'll put that on the T-shirt. You know, we, we got to. Uh, <laughs> I'm working on that actually. Organizations, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. wonderful. Well, thank you, thank you for sharing that. That is fantastic. And I'm always fascinated about what it takes to differentiate some leaders from others. Like, what what is it that made them more special than maybe 90 percent of their peers or what have you? And so I'm curious, Eric, is there um, an individual or brand or an entity out there that you really rem- admire as being someone who's leading at the top of their game? Yes. And I know earlier we talked about Yvonne Schwinard from Patagonia, who I think is fabulous. We just stepped down as, as CEO to build a fabulous brand there. But actually, I'm going to go to somebody else, given what's happening in the world right now. Sure. Which is Chef uh, Jose Andres from World Temple Kitchen. Love him. Love him. Yes. Love him. He has stepped up in so many ways, and not just him, but again, the people he has empowered, the people he has brought together to to feed people in in Ukraine. It seems like anywhere anything bad is happening, they show up with the most important thing, which is food and love. Yes. That's what they bring together. And and, um, I think he has gone from being obviously a top flight restaurateur, top flight best chef in the world. I never have actually eaten one of those meals, but I've heard he was the best chef in the world to say, you know what, I'm going to go cook where it's not pretty. And it's, it's, you know, things are going sideways yes. and we're going to go cook and take care of people. And so to right. me, that is absolutely leading at the top of his game. Oh my oh. gosh. He is one of my faves. I actually um, talk about him when I speak uh, many times I have a list of those I'll pick from based on the audience, but he's definitely one that I pull for and, and talk about. So we're like-minded people think alike, you and I, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't let you get off the um, episode without you sharing a little bit about your book. Can you talk to us about uh, your book and, and some of the highlights that's contained therein? Well, thank you. The book is You're It, Prices Change and How to Leave When It Matters Most. It brings together 15 years of, of practice and research from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard. So it takes you inside some of the academic thinking, but also a lot of those practical on-the-ground stories from places like Sandy and the other crises you mentioned, because that's how we've learned. We've learned by watching leaders do things well, do things not so well, 
and then trying to crystallize them into easy concepts and tools for other people to be able to pick up and use. And so distilling that wisdom and trying to get people a little bit wiser, faster, I guess, is the best way to say it. That's what's in the book. So there's a lot of stories there from not just us, but the people we've been with leading in a whole variety of situations where the consequences were high, what they did, and then we crystallize that into sort of understanding who you are as a person, understanding the situation around you, and then the connectivity, the relationships, down to your team, up to your boss, across to your peers, and then beyond to your external stakeholders. And if you're leading in a crisis, and you're, you know, those are really good lenses for figuring out what's going right and what's going wrong. You know, am I centered? Am I calm? Am I sure what's going on? Do I really understand the situation? And then where's that connectivity strong or weak? If you, you know, are people working together or against each other? And that's, we tried to make it a very approachable and practical book. And um, I hope folks who hear this will want to go pick up a copy and read it. And I'd love to hear from them if, uh, if they like it or even if they don't like it. I want to hear from them anyway. <laughs> well, I'm going to be one to pick it up. Um, I was fascinated when I saw the summary. So that is going to probably be my, my next um purchase on Amazon, but we will have links to where to find it um, in our show notes, audience members. So definitely, definitely pick that up. And um, Eric, if anyone wanted to reach out to you for consulting or advice, is there a best way to find you? Sure. www.ericmcnulty.com is my website. There's a contact form there. You can get me. I'm easily found on LinkedIn. Uh, and the program at Harvard is npli.sph.harvard.edu. You can find my, me and my colleagues and a lot of our case studies and things there if people want to read more. Wonderful. And audience members, we will definitely have links to those as well in the show notes. So, Eric, I cannot believe time is up, but this has been a fantastic episode. And thank you so much for the gift of your time today. Well, Karen, thank you so much for asking me. You're a great question asker. So I really appreciate the conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, that means a lot coming from you, sir. I tell you. <laughs> and thank you also, audience members. Um, we definitely would love for you to like and subscribe to our podcast. And please share with just one friend. Because when you do so, that helps us extend our reach and help others just like you to lead at the top of your game. Thanks again for the gift of your time. And see you next week. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Eric Minolti, Associate Director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard, and also author of the book, You're It, Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. Links to his bio, his entry into our leadership playbook, and additional resources can be found in the show notes, both on your favorite podcast platform of choice and on the web at leadyourgamepodcast.com. And now for Karen's take on today's topic of response during a crisis. I've led many a workplace crisis, and believe you me, it's never easy. So I wanted to take this time to share 10 quick tips on what you can do as a leader when you find yourself right dab in the middle of one. So the first quick tip is to create a crisis management team that contains the expertise related to the crisis. This is not the time to include every single leader that's in your organization. Be very specific and keep the working team small. Your second tip is to clear all of the team's table of any other unnecessary responsibilities. If it's not urgent, then clear their calendars. The third tip is to focus on gathering the facts, 
but search with empathy and compassion because chances are there's going to be some bad information that's going to be part of the story. That's what made it a crisis in the first place. Your fourth tip is to resolve what you initially can as soon as possible because fear paralyzes people. Try to make some early wins to buy time for the longer tasks that you're going to have to tackle down the road. The fifth task is to be present. No non-essential activities like non-urgent meetings or non-essential business trips or social events like golf outings. Stay focused on the crisis. The fifth tip is to always be poised and positive. Others are going to feed off of how you react during the height of a crisis. So remain resilient and calm. The seventh tip involves crisis communications. Be sure that you over-communicate during this time because attention spans get diverted because of the heightened emotions that everyone is feeling. So over-communicate, over-communicate, over-communicate. The eighth tip is to take ownership of what went wrong. Once you get a good feel for the details, immediately share with all stakeholders and take ownership. The ninth tip, after the crisis is averted or solved, post an after-action audit. During this audit, be sure to evaluate your response by conducting a debrief on what went well and where there are opportunities to improve in the future. And the 10th and final tip, announce uh, the close of the crisis activity and deliver instructions on how all involved should move forward. You need to make sure that you close it out with everyone uh, so that they know that the urgent response period is over. You'll start slowly transitioning back to normal and they'll get instructions on any course corrections that they need to personally make if necessary. Now, these are just some initial thoughts to get you started, but obviously there is more that can be done during the planning phases. So I'll include a few resources in the show notes for you to learn a bit more. And I thank you for staying tuned for Karen's Take. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and, and share with just one friend because this one selfless act will empower you to help others just like you to also lead at the top of their game. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast, where we help you lead your seat at any employer, business, or industry in which you choose to play. You can check out the show notes, additional episodes, bonus resources, and also submit guest recommendations on our website at leadyourgamepodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn by searching for the name Karen Rhodes, with Karen being spelled K-A-R-A-N. And if you like the show, the greatest gift you can give would be to subscribe and leave a rating on your podcast platform of choice. This podcast has been a production of Shockingly Different Leadership, a global consultancy which helps organizations execute their people, talent development, and organizational effectiveness initiatives on an on-demand project or contract basis. Huge thanks to our production and editing team for a job well done. Goodbye for now.